This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Brian Winter calls himself an optimist when it comes to Latin America. He's covered the region for decades. These days, he's editor of America's Quarterly. But after the first few weeks of 2023... I am struggling with that optimism because I I worry sometimes that I hear myself talk about the 2000s and it almost sounds like an aging rock band playing its greatest hits. You're like, those are the good old days. Exactly. No, it sounds like you're sitting on your front porch rocking chair waxing philosophical about when times were good. Back in the early 2000s, when Brian was living first in Argentina, then Brazil, people were talking about the Latin American decade. Local economies were buoyed by commodities prices, and local political races were getting more democratic. Now, Brian looks at the region and sees anti-government protests getting violent in both Peru and Brazil. In Chile, voters are duking it out over a new constitution, and polls reveal democracy is taking a beating. If you told Brian two decades ago that hundreds of people would storm Brazil's capital, entering Congress, the Supreme Court, and the presidential palace the way they did on January 8th, he might not have believed you. I started getting WhatsApp messages, the preferred Brazilian form of communication. Everybody's on WhatsApp. And I start getting these images uh, around midday on the 8th saying things like, here we go. Supporters of former far-right President Jair Bolsonaro refused to accept his election defeat. They broke through barricades and battled police in the capital, Brasilia. They even demanded the military oust the new democratically elected president, Luiz Inácio Lula da Silva. He condemned This video from Brasilia is hard to watch. At one point, a mob pulls the policeman off of a horse he's riding, and they beat him. Protesters threw objects and scaled the roofs of buildings while clashing with police who responded with tear gas. At least one protester was seen sitting at the desk of Brazil's Congress president. They believe that if the Brazilian military came out on the streets, they would take their side, okay, that they would remove Lula from office and restore Bolsonaro to his quote-unquote rightful place in power. That was never going to happen. The Brazilian military commanders, while they personally quite like Bolsonaro, they understand that we live in a world where, well, basically the 20th century is over and that you cannot roll tanks through the streets and, you know, topple a government and still expect to be part of the international community, which Brazil very much is. But again, this was the idea that these protesters had. And so a relatively small group, about 5,000 people, uh, whipped into a frenzy, went and did this. And there had never been anything like it in Brazil's long history. To a lot of people, this moment looked eerily familiar, echoing January 6th, 2021, at the Capitol. But the aftermath of this Brazilian riot, it could play out differently than it has stateside, Brian says, as a new president, Lula, tries to work levers of power that keep getting stuck. And there's this term that you don't 
often here in the United States, this term is governability, literally the ability to govern. And there's a chance that if this goes sideways and Lula is not able to somehow defuse this time bomb within the security forces while also not losing completely their loyalty and obedience, there's a chance that you'll be hearing that word governability a lot about Brazil over the next four years. Well, it sounds like what you're saying is that term governability, we might be hearing it a lot about a bunch of countries in Latin America because similar things seem to be happening there. Oh, no doubt. All these strains, these social tensions, some of them which date back centuries, are being opened right now because of this region just kind of being stuck. Not everywhere, but a lot of these countries are just struggling to form a basic consensus to go forward. Today on the show, as Latin America begins to feel more and more unstable, what's the right way to cool things down? I'm Mary Harris. You're listening to What Next. Stick around. This episode is brought to you by Discover. When it comes to your finances, Discover wants you to know they are the credit card that is always there for you. With 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, that means no more waiting for, quote, normal business hours just to get a hold of someone. We are talking real service from real people whenever you need it. Get the customer service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. To understand the distress that's being felt across Latin America right now, I wonder if we could go back a little bit and explain... Latin America's phenomenal economic and political rise during the 2000s. You've written about that time, and you were living there during that time. People were talking about it as the Latin American decade. Can you just talk about what it was like in the region during that moment and what it looked and felt like in the 2000s? It was an intoxicating thing to be part of. I was living in Brazil from 2010 to 2015. 2010 was just the best year for Brazil. It was a year that the economy grew more than 7%. It was Lula's last year in office during his previous term. He had an approval rating upwards of 80%. It's an economic success story worthy of a victory dance. As the rest of the world struggles to recover from an economic downturn, Brazil is prospering with employment figures to make other nations weep. And my my favorite memory was of flying, was of being on passenger planes all over Brazil because almost every flight you took, there were people on there who were flying for the first time, who because their lives had improved, uh, they were able to go by plane instead of by bus. And you'd see these people, you could often see who they were because they looked a little uncertain, they looked a little scared, they'd sort of be walking down the aisle trying to figure out what happens next. And, you know, that was just one little window into what was happening during those years, which was upward social mobility. And it was a product really of two things. Uh, It was an era where there was a boom in commodities export prices for the things that Latin America and particularly the countries of South America sell to the world. A lot of that was driven by China. 
But there was another factor, which was that these were a lot of these countries had made difficult reforms in the 1990s in order to stabilize their economies, open up, open them up at least a little bit more to trade. And in the 2000s, they really started to enjoy the dividends from that. I think of it as like having a sail that was unfurled as much as possible that allowed them to harness that positive wind that blew because of China during those years. So how did the wind come out of Latin America's sails? Because it's interesting, you've written about how, like the economists in particular, they've had a bunch of covers about Latin America, Brazil in particular, where they use the famous Christ the Redeemer statue, that huge one that looks out over Rio as a kind of avatar for things that have been happening in Latin America. Like originally it's like Brazil takes off and it's Christ the Redeemer sort of zooming around. And then eventually, you know, Christ the Redeemer holding a sign saying SOS with like, has Brazil blown it? And you've said that's really indicative of what happened in Latin America as a whole. So how did the region make such a sharp turn? Well, some of it had to do with things that were happening outside the region and the winds essentially changed. Uh, China's economy started to slow down in around 2012, 2013. Commodities prices came down as a result and therefore Virtually every country around the region went into a period of lower growth. And in some cases, such as uh, Venezuela, Argentina, and Brazil, outright recession and crisis. The future no longer so bright up here, home to some of the millions of Brazilians who climbed out of poverty in recent years and now struggle to keep from falling back in. But, you know, a big part of the story as well was that expectations rose so much during those good years. Again, people were not only riding airplanes for the first time, but they were buying their first washing machines. They were buying big screen televisions. Uh, they were sending kids to private universities and public universities and other places for the first time. And when that started to slow down, a lot of people who had come out of poverty sensed what was happening and they said, uh-uh, I'm not going back. I'm not going back to the way things were before. They sensed that everything that they had gained was in danger. And that was what really pulled people onto the streets was the beginning of a lot of this social unrest, uh, as well as the political instability, because people lost patience with their leaders very quickly when life stopped getting better. Yeah, you're really drawing this line between economic instability and political turmoil and how, you know, great expectations created an opening where people just would not have a return to the way things were. Yeah, and it exposed a lot of the challenges that the region has always had, or maybe better put, during the good years, perhaps some of those things were papered over a bit. But then when the winds changed or the tide went out, uh, it, it became clear that the old challenges, things, uh, unsexy sort of wonky things like productivity, for example, productivity is a can be a big source of economic growth. But it has been flat in Latin America for the better part of 60 years because of education not being uh, as good as it could be because of investment being low. And so a lot of these old problems came home to roost. Hmm. Yeah, a recent article in the Journal of Democracy put it like this. They said Latin America's democracies are stuck. Would you agree with that? I think that they're 
is an impatience and an unrest because these governments are not delivering what citizens want. They're not meeting those expectations that were raised. And, you know, there's been a lot of coverage in recent years about Latin American governments swinging to the left, for example. And it's true. Um, more than 80% of the region's citizens right now are, are, governed, are governed by leaders who are left of center. But that ideological shift can disguise what's really been happening, which is a vote against incumbents. It is hard to be, it is really hard to be a president in Latin America right now. And what we see is really people voting against whatever is there and preferring to cast their ballot instead for people that are new and people that offer something different. Incumbents or their preferred candidates in Latin America have lost 15 elections in a row now, going back to 2018. For president. For president, that's right. And so that really tells you the story. And a lot of these people come in with these huge expectations. I mean, your audience may be familiar with Gabriel Boric, the, the president of Chile, who's uh, a millennial, 36 years old, kind of swept to victory in 2019 with this all this hope and youth and brought a bunch of 30-somethings with him. His approval rating today is 25%. And that is a story that keeps repeating itself over and over again across the region because these economies just uh, don't grow. And more to the point, um, poverty is is stuck. People's lives are not improving. Inflation is high. COVID was brutal in the region. That's another part of the story. And so uh, for a lot of people that that manifests itself as being unhappy with their president. And in some countries, not all, they're becoming unhappy with democracy itself. After the break, how has this economic downturn and dissatisfaction with government played out in Brazil and Peru? I wonder if we can focus on Brazil and Peru to just have some windows into very specifically how this discontent is playing out in a couple of places that are a little bit different. Brazil's still picking up the pieces from January 8th. So I just wonder how you do pick up those pieces because you've had this moment of tremendous unrest, very public, and it just seems unclear to me how Lula pushes through and has a normal presidency at this point. You're right. It's going to be a big challenge. And so what we're seeing happen now is he is moving somewhat cautiously uh, because he has a big problem on his hands. And this is a really important difference with the United States. In Brazil, the loyalties of the military and of the police are very much in question. People might say, oh, well, you know, a lot of police voted for Trump as well and supported January 6th. Mm, there are degrees. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and I would say that in the case of Brazil, it is a problem and could turn into a bigger problem. Brian says he's not really worried about the Brazilian military staging a full-on coup. And he's got sources inside the Brazilian military. But he is worried they might start disrupting Lula's new government in other ways. Even before the election took place, there was this incident in which police 
blocked off a federal highway in what appeared to be an attempt to prevent Lula's voters from getting to the polls. Brian thinks disruptions like that could become more common as Lula starts to crack down on the January 8th rioters. I don't think there's any chance that the military will roll in and and kick Lula out of office or try to do so, for example. But there are lots of bad things that can happen in a country like Brazil that fall short of being a coup. If you don't have command and control of your security forces, you will have all kinds of problems, including the one that you cited with the highway police, where they were, as an institution, trying to either harass or stop Lula's voters from going to the ballot box. I mean, that is a that is a huge deal. The military is very connected in other parts of society as well. So not having their full buy-in can still generate instability. Another country that's struggling right now is Peru, where violent protests have been going on for weeks, leaving at least 50 people dead. Across Peru, violent protests are intensifying. Anti-government protesters and police taking aim at one another. The number of injured now in the hundreds, and it continues to climb. Peru was another one of these countries that did really well uh, by at least some measures in the 2000s. But as often happens, not all the progress was equally distributed. And a lot of these rural areas, malnutrition remains very high. Access to things like drinking water uh, remains very low. And people felt like they were left out. And in a world of uh, social media where everybody can see the good things that are happening, especially in capitals like Lima, that resentment has been simmering for years. But there's an additional element in the case of Peru that I think is worth mentioning, which is that this is a country that, in part for some of these reasons, was by some measures the hardest hit in the world by COVID. The per capita death rate from Peru uh, was higher than than anywhere else, in part because of so many people being outside the system looking in. Uh, even though Peru's uh, economy did well by many standards over the last 20 years, it's still a country that has one of the largest percentages of informality of people who kind of live outside the formal economy. So again, it's the same old story. It's people on the outside looking in, feeling like they weren't included in the imperfect progress of recent years and who are now lashing out. This anger was stoked after Peruvian President Pedro Castillo was unceremoniously ousted from power. Castillo had tried to dissolve Congress and rule by decree, which is an illegal step to consolidate power. So he got impeached and arrested, and his vice president took over. Castillo's supporters were outraged. He'd been elected in 2021 on a platform of finally representing the rural and indigenous communities that had felt left out of Peruvian politics for decades. But Brian notes he took office as Peru's sixth president in six years— and multiple predecessors had resigned or been impeached. So he didn't really have the odds in his favor here. I have to say, I mean, I'm trying to be fair here, but he he just looked unprepared from day one. I mean, he disappeared for several days after he was elected. He had meetings with his party 
Like they were trying to figure out what to do next. There were alleged acts of corruption involving members of his family. And it's true that he had a lot of the system against him. There's no doubt. But he also didn't do himself any favors. And then finally, this all culminated in him trying this kind of power play where he was going to launch a so-called self-coup closing Congress, but Castillo didn't have the support to do it. And hours after he announced that he was going to try to do this, he was in jail. But then within a few days, there were protests in the street by people who who thought this was unjust. I've heard some Peruvian analysts say that the most popular thing that Castillo ever did was leave office, meaning a lot of the people who were grumbling about him while he was there because he didn't really achieve much, then said, ooh, what what they, and they being the elite of the capital in their minds, what they've done to him is unfair. And so you could really say that Castillo has enjoyed more support out of office than when he was in office. It's such an interesting dynamic where, you know, as you said, people are just pushing back against leadership in general, right? Yeah, and it shows that while people, a lot of Peruvians do not support Castillo and what he was trying to do in office and they disapproved of his performance, at the same time, he was a symbol for these reasons that I cited. And the image of this school teacher um, from Cajamarca in the Andes being, in their view, pushed aside and thrown in jail unceremoniously by the political elite, which, again, I think is kind of a stilted account or version of what happened. I mean, to be clear, what Castillo did was was illegal, period. Uh, it still really sat badly with a lot of Peruvians, especially in these communities where they saw some of themselves in him. And so people came out on the streets. Uh, Then the police and military reacted in an incredibly and tragically heavy-handed way. That brings more people out onto the streets, as we've repeatedly seen throughout Latin American history. It just creates, you know, again, another one of these cycles of violence and political dysfunction and other things that can become very hard to break out of once you're in it. You've noted that there are these boom and bust cycles in Latin America, politically and economically. So how do you think this moment is different from what you've seen before? We're going to go to the dark side of my thinking now. And I'm I'm laughing a little bit because, as I've said, I'm an optimist and I don't don't like to go here. But there's been discussion about how the last decade in Latin America was a lost decade because the economies didn't grow because of all this political instability, corruption scandals, and so on. Some people are worried that we could be in for another lost decade now in the 2020s. My concern is that maybe these economies are just flatlining and that when we talk about one lost decade or two, perhaps we're not thinking hard enough about what's really going on. The point being, there there is just nothing that is clearly a driver of economic growth on the horizon. And I believe uh, that without growth, it's really hard to do things like reduce poverty and improve living standards. Because if the overall size of the pie is not growing, all you're left is to try to divvy it up in different ways. And some of that is necessary, but it's not enough. 
A lot of people have asked you what the U.S. role is here in a Latin America that's struggling to find its footing. And you've said the most important thing for the U.S. to do is sort of clean up our own act. (laughs) You know, we have our own struggles with democracy to tend to. And, you know, us telling Latin American countries what to do hasn't been the best way forward in the past. But I wonder, do you really think it's going to be possible for the U.S. to stay out of Latin America's domestic affairs? Because the more economic and political challenges Latin America faces, the more people are going to turn up on our southern border. And of course, the border is a huge political football already. There's no question that these economic and political troubles in Latin America are driving uh, people to leave. And it's the number of countries that are sending people to the United States has grown. It's not just the countries of the Northern Triangle of Central America. It's not just Mexico. It's uh, people from Venezuela, Colombia, Brazil, Haiti. It's become a much more diverse group of countries, and that reflects how widespread some of these problems are. I I think there's this old tendency that you see, especially in Washington, where when something goes wrong in Latin America, people ask, well, well, what did the president, what did the government in D.C. do wrong? What can they do differently? And, you know, you raised this long history of U.S. intervention in Latin America, especially in the 20th century. It manifested itself in ugly and often counterproductive ways. I think that Now, especially the Biden administration understands that uh, these are sovereign countries and that the U.S. can only do so much. Brian Winter, I'm super grateful for your time. Thanks for coming on the show. Thanks for the invitation. Brian Winter is the editor-in-chief of America's Quarterly. All right, that's the show. If you're a fan of what we're doing here at What Next, the best way to support us is to go on over and join our membership program. It's known as Slate Plus. You just go to slate.com slash whatnextplus and sign right up. What Next is produced by Elena Schwartz, Carmel Delshad, and Madeline Ducharme. We are getting a ton of support right now from Anna Phillips, Jared Downing, Victoria Dominguez, and Laura Spencer. We're led by Alicia Montgomery with an assist from Susan Matthews. Ben Richmond is there day in and day out making sure I read the ads. And I'm Mary Harris. Go track me down on Twitter. I'm at Mary's desk. All right, thanks for listening. Talk to you tomorrow. This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done which is music to his ears. Call, click Granger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.